time for more movie thoughts, reviews, and royal commentary from Richard Fitzwilliams on the Midweek Drive. Also, little known fact, Richard Fitzwilliams now prefers to be called Richie. The Edinburgh Festival 2019. Yes, I thought it was particularly significant because, as you've just heard, we finally discovered what Phil Learness's pet name for Mr. Fitzwilliams is. Uh, So before we go to The Shark uh, is Broken, uh, the listener has actually heard this, but Richie, dare I say, um, you haven't actually heard Phil's latest identity jingle for you. It is awesome. It's worth playing this back just to listen to that, to, to that alone, especially as we've got Yaz, DeGraff and Sarah Huntley with us on board. Uh, but would you like to start off with this play at the Ambassador's Theatre? Actually, just briefly, Sarah Huntley, are you familiar with the Ambassador's Theatre? Um, I, I probably am. I think it might be one that's changed its name. So I'm so old, it probably had a different name to start with. Am I right? Wow. Uh, um, well, I don't, I don't know of that. I, I, I mean, where I can place it, uh, is it's next door to the theatre showing the mouse truck. I mean, that's been on since... That's, that's the, all you need. Oh, that's all so it, it's, exactly. it's off St Martin's Lane. It's yeah. Martin's Lane. At least got that yeah. sorted out, because you've got, before I actually go any further, the son of Robert Shaw, Ian Shaw, together with Liam Murray Scott, as Richard Dravers in a uh, fantastic scenario of a play that first launched... Uh, successfully, as I say, back in 2019 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and Richards finally got around to actually realising that we need a, a bigger boat because the shark is broken. The shark is broken, and indeed, it just so happens, Alex, that Liam Murray Scott, who plays Richard Dreyfus, uh, was... This is a, these are times for understudies. I'm sure you'll all agree. And this was a truly, truly remarkable performance. Stepping in, uh, stepping into uh, this role was Tom Kelsey, who I thought was absolutely marvelous. And indeed, just to uh, find, just finding his um, biography in the program. But it seems to me that this is this is really a time where understudies can expect almost anything because he that same week he played not only Richard Dreyfus but he also played um, Robert Shaw. Now that is an, um, it's quite amazing. And the Dreyfus character, uh, just to set the scene again, this is the three actors: um, Roy Schneider, um, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfus, uh, all played, I mean, originally the intention was um, that uh, we have Dimitri Goritzas as Roy Schneider. He's very good indeed. He's he's made it, uh, he's an actor who's made it at that, for this particular point. And he he serves as the the only only sane bridge between two characters so opposite that they can, well, uh, whether they come to blows or not, would I give a spoiler? But the facts are that Ian Shaw, who's the son of Robert Shaw and the co-writer, plays his father, and Liam Murray Scott, yes, he normally plays Dreyfus, but Tom Kelsey was absolutely marvellous, and he's playing a complete neurotic, I mean, although he's Let, done... Let's just little... hold that very briefly, Richard, because I just wanted to actually do a little bit of uh, research here in terms of, Sarah, have you ever seen the movie Jaws? Yes, I have, yes. Yaz de Graaf, from, of course, The Wonders of Bermuda, and now, of course, the official chair of Signet PR at the University of Lincoln. Have you ever seen Jaws? Yes, I have. 
excellent. So this movie, reader, or this movie, this, this stage play is about the challenges that the actors within George is all about. Is that the fair point? That is- there is a, well, it's set in a boat, a boat, it rocks from time to time. These are bored actors because the mechanical sharks, the it's spielberg broken. they are broken. Indeed, this was the reason that we got this wonderful scene initially, uh, because in fact, he didn't have sharks that worked for much of the film. And that meant they had to improvise with music. And you, you, we see it's fascinating. This does tell you something about the human condition, because these are riveting character studies. You've got someone, Dreyfus, he's young to be sure, but he's a complete neurotic. Also, he's fiendishly uh, ambitious and in so doing, so being, he is somewhat pathetic from time to time. Uh, it's very fortunate you've got the Roy Schneider character because otherwise he and Robert Shaw uh, talk about opposites. The creation, this is a homage to Robert Shaw by his son, who, as we mentioned, is the co-writer. But Shaw's personality absolutely dominates this extremely well-written play. I would say also the fact it's written with the benefit of hindsight is a great, great bonus, because you can get quite easy laughs by the Shaw character saying, oh, this play is going to be total flop. No one will remember it. He's got an extraordinary voice which dominates, absolutely dominates. Not the play, Richard, the film. Not the play, the film. At the film as well, of course, the famous role of Quint. And Quint, of course, is is an unstable shark hunter, rather like sort of like Captain Ahab and um, the Mo- Mo- in Moby Dick, hi- hunting the great white whale. You've got uh, Quint uh, in the famous monologue, um, who when uh, during in 1945 he plays a character who took yes, this is this is it, who took uh, the bomb in a ship that was not. Uh, tracked uh, because it was so sensitive. They couldn't get their lifeboats free when they were torpedoed and what happened to the men in the water is told in graphic detail. Since then he's a shark hunter, he hates them and the the real life Quint is is a somewhat bizarre character, uh, somewhat monstrous in some ways. Uh, and we've got Robert Shaw, who's, who's an absolutely fascinating, he dominates this. And not only his detestation of Richard Dreyfus, who he calls boy and crybaby, uh, but when Shaw, he can recite a sonnet from Shakespeare and add, I composed that, I wrote that when I was five. Then when they've got nothing to do, he once a game of shove halfpenny, but the way he enunciates, if you argued with him, when he has a drink, for example, he's an alcoholic and he's bottles all over the place. When anyone demurs, so you didn't want to live today, he would have been prime minister. That <laughs> I think is. I'm very, very probable that <laughs> you mentioned it. But uh, I mean, the instability uh, there is, it's, it's fascinating, but anthropologically, when you've got three characters who are such opposites, but you've also got a script that is very, very funny and it's penetrating and it's perceptive. And you've also, there's water in front of the boat and you can see the seascapes behind with a few birds and so forth. The boat's gently rocking. I do have to say that the way Jaws preys on the subconscious is so is so fascinating because even when I was roaring with laughter, some of the characters, what they were saying, and admiring Tom Kelsey's, uh, I, I went with an actress 
Gabriel Curtis, uh, a friend, uh, as I say, he played two roles in one week as an understudy. It's quite amazing. Well, uh, I wasn't uh, feeling very, very at ease because Jaws scared me. And as we all know now, uh, its portrayal of sharks was not entirely accurate. And the, um, it they really... just need a decent PR agency working for them, probably Signet. You know, Alex, um, it, this is a very, very entertaining play. The roars of laughter that, from an audience, especially since what the characters say, you know, in hindsight, that Jaws was cost $9 million, which was considered outrageous and made nearly half a billion, and also it changed the way that films that and the Godfather. The way films, it's a cinematic uh, blockbuster. Sarah, is this the sort of text that, as restrictions are due to be lifted completely, in Britain by Sajid Javid in the very, very near future. If they haven't already gone, will you be checking out that place just next door to the place where they're running the mousetrap to have a theatrical visit? Definitely, definitely. I mean, the more you think about the title, it's a very clever title, isn't it? The shark is broken because it's representative of not just the shark. Um, but no, I, I, I think this is absolutely great. And um, I'm pleased Richard mentioned the understudy because <laughs> That is a real feat because he'll be saying lines to himself. Do you see what I mean? So the two main characters talk against one another. And um, at the moment, there's more work around for actors because every time anyone goes up for a job, they also have what they call COVID cover. <laughs> so I've had one or two availability checks, not for the job, but be to COVID cover, um, which is quite good, really. Um, and hopefully, uh, for understudies, because I've understudied, and it's a very, very scary job, because you don't really get that many rehearsals, and you have to watch rehearsals. So that chat that went on, brilliant, because he won't have really had many chances to watch the show, um, and keeping both sets of lines going oh. is phenomenal. It's quite a mental feat. So, well, but it sounds a really funny play, really funny play. Yaz, is it something, given that it only runs until mid-February, we'll be saying, I must get on the train to London now and go and see this, or will you hold back? Oh, no. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not going to go mad, um, but I'm, I'm going out to lunch today, for instance, so, you know. That's fine, Sarah, except the, qu the question was originally aimed at Yaz. Go for it, Yaz. I'm, so, I'm so sorry. So sorry. <laughs> It's cool. Um, I think I'm going to save on the ticket. You know, we have a lot of work here as it is. This is true. Final year, final year student, dissertation, all of those things to actually work through. I can empathise. But you do get the choice, yes. Would you like, Richard, to talk about Munich as we head towards war, a movie that is released on Netflix very soon in the video already might be released by the time this actually goes out on Siren Radio, or La Petite Maman, or his views on that um exemplar of good quality royal manners and discretion and decorum we're referring of course to the grand old not for much longer duke of york um i think i'm gonna go with the first option <laughs> it's munich richard it is indeed. Thanks, Yaz, because that's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I mean, uh, this this is based on Munich. The film is Munich: The Edge of War. It is directed by Christian Scofo, and it is, as you say, it's also on Netflix as well as in some cinemas. I saw it in the cinema, and it's based on Robert Harris. Is Munich. And in a Robert Harris, uh, Fatherland was, I, I haven't read Munich, but I did read Fatherland. And I mean, 
this has been billed, and I saw Jeremy Arms interviewed about this, giving a, a very different or slightly different interpretation of the Neville Chamberlain, who must be one of the most reviled prime ministers in history, but he certainly wasn't at he the He has time. a piece of paper, Richard, upon himself, a piece of paper. A piece of paper, which a piece in a... And compared to Boris, he's a saint. Well, uh, it's, it is very interesting because, of course, the, though Chamberlain, and I mean, it, it, I quote Lloyd George's views on Chamberlain's father, who he said looked at life through the wrong end of a municipal drain pipe. Now, that, that does, in a sense, summarise the fact that Chamberlain is a sort of absurd stuffed church. He is not an evil man at all, but he unquestionably doesn't recognize, firstly, the actual menace that Hitler unquestionably was, but secondly, there is, and this is true, and it was true of almost everyone at the time, Churchill, of course, saw things differently, but it's a question of the, the horrors of the First World War were only 20 years plus away. And he, Chamberlain believed while there was a chance of peace, he should take it. What the Robert Harris, uh, and this is what's fun, what's fun and very enjoyable indeed about this movie, because it's a thriller. It's a sort of what if we know what happened. But we follow the fortunes of two friends who are both at the Munich conference on either side. Hugh Leggett, played by George Mackay, private secretary, he becomes to the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, and also Paul von Hartmann, played by Janice Neuer, uh, who is a member of the of what essentially is a sort of loose anti-Hitler uh, resistance where you've got, they had connections in, in the army, but they needed an excuse to move against him. And he, it turns out that he's actually able, uh, this is, it builds up tension to be the person who hands Hitler his pressed digest. Just think of the opportunities that might provide. Uh, what have they, we meet the first as Oxford friends at a rather colourful Oxford ball, a sort of debauch. And but they, when um, Hugh Leggett visits Munich subsequently, he and Paul fall out badly because Paul in the mid. 30s defending what Hitler's doing. By the time of Munich, he realizes that, um, or realizes precisely what is actually likely to happen. And what's more, he's got a pivotal document that he wants to show Chamberlain personally, which proves Hitler's intentions go far beyond the uh, supposed annexation of the Sudetenland, uh, which was garrison, the irony of Munich was that Czechoslovakia was partitioned, but without even a say at the conference. But it did delay war a year. The argument also at the end of the film does point out that, yeah, gave Britain and its allies a chance to rearm and prepare. Equally, it's in, not pointed out, but a fact that Hitler was infuriated by Munich because it held, it, he felt it held him up. But all of this dominated by a, a wonderfully, a, a sort of stuffy, basically well-intentioned soul. You can see Chamberlain's desperately narrow focus and the fact that he 
I mean, he would he saw in a gangster Hitler. We don't see anything in Mussolini other than uh, the sort of background figure. Um, someone who he felt he could do deal with a deal with for the sake of peace. He didn't. It wasn't a question of him liking him, but the point was that again, it was the shadow of the First World War cast over his generation, and the fact also that Chamberlain, by then, was son of seventy, and he simply couldn't. He wasn't. He wasn't capable of dealing with with Hitler and with Hitler's ambitions. But there's no question that it with fine production values, with a script that helps build a drama, this didn't happen, but conceivably it could have happened. You've got these two characters working somehow, one to um, get Hitler's Richard real Richard has always Socrates, three sieves, the three sieves of truth. Did you witness it yourself being sieve number one? Uh, was it actually truthful being sieve number two? And indeed, uh, is it simply a case of what's the reputation of the person who's actually sharing the story as sieve number three? So there are issues there. Uh, Yaz, Munich, is it one for you? Will you be checking the Netflix production out? Um, yeah, I'm definitely very interested. And um, I like how it's accessible. Don't feel really feel like going all the way down to the cinema at the moment. But um, yeah, definitely. There we are. Thumbs up there. And Sarah, like myself, obviously, we have a background which you could say was arguably heavily influenced by the Second World War. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we weren't around at the time. So uh, from that point of view, is this one which historically you'd say, well, our parents were. Let's just check this out there. Oh, definitely. I like Jeremy Irons very much. I looked at the trailer and I think it's always interesting to look at how Richard's explained a twist that might have happened, how things might have turned out had things been different. So, yeah, it looks looks really good. It's, it looks very um, nice, handsome men. Looks quite intriguing. Um, the trailer whetted my appetite and Richard has too. So I'll, I'm definitely going to get that on Netflix. And they're really good looking, but not. But Chamberlain isn't exactly uh, uh, appealing in that regard. I, <laughs> I don't know. Wasn't no. he the Joe Biden of his day, surely? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the makeup, Chamber, Jeremy Allen's makeup is quite a feat, actually. Yeah. I find Jeremy Allen's acting very fascinating. And, uh, but I, 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 it looked, it looked, I think it looks like a very good one to lose yourself in on a Sunday evening. That's what I think it looks like. Oh, I, I put it in in the afternoon uh, as well because it's it's very exciting. I mean, we know what happened, but all these question marks and the character studies. I mean, uh, but Chamberlain, it, it is. I mean, it was said. I think of uh, was it Gore Vidal said of Ronald Reagan, a masterpiece of the Obama's art. I I, I think that. <laughs> I thought of that, but I saw the uh, Jeremy Irons is Chamberlain. He he does look like him. No, he really does. Well, there, there, there we are. It's great makeup as well. So, uh, Richard, just share with us uh, how busy your schedule has been, given the fact that the soon-to-be, possibly ex-Duke of York, uh, although it's nice to see that uh, Sarah Ferguson retains her title as the Duchess of York, uh, now that obviously the cut them adrift, we need to actually throw them to the sharks approach is actually working. Just just how busy have you actually been internationally? 
Well, it, it's, I mean, we ended up with Germany, um, with Austria, and with Hispanic television at Telemundo in the United States, and also LBC and BBC Kent. And those were the last five. And I think there were about 30, including a few in the press. Uh, so newspapers um, kicking off with India and also BBC World um, and TRT, uh, which is Turkey. Uh, so, you know, it really, it really was, it was very busy and it happened to be spaced out in a way. There was also global news uh, from Canada um, and BBC Wales. So it, it was somehow spaced out that I was able to do everything that people want. somehow spaced out is a, is a wonderful way for maybe uh, addressing the recollection of, of, of certain parties and, and Prince Andrew and various other folk, etc. I mean, is it, well, is it fun, Friday? Are people just taking a delight in, in, in the kind of uh, the car crash that's occurring here? Well, I mean, it's a car crash of Krakatoan proportions. And as for recollections, I mean, Andrew doesn't recollect. And there's the photograph of uh, him with his arm around Virginia Roberts, as she was then taken in 2001 with Jelaine Maxwell uh, in a London home. Uh, she's now, of course, convicted sex trafficker. The whole thing is absolutely ghastly. Uh, and as far as recollections are concerned, apparently it is reported that her recollections, uh, which have, I think it's been admitted from time to time, have varied, uh, will conceivably if this goes into the discovery stage according to the telegraph yesterday he would be subject to seven hours uh, cross-examination in the discovery stage of this if it heading towards a civil court where in my opinion it simply won't go uh, simply because 95 percent of civil cases in, in New York. And remember, there is the domicile question because she's in Australia, uh, in Perth, uh, he's here, and it's linked, she linked to Colorado in 2019. And that is, there's a slight question mark over that, but essentially, um, I, I mean, it will almost certainly be settled, but the matter won't just be money. It will also, undoubtedly, since Virginia Roberts Jeffrey sees herself as a spokesperson for the victims of Epstein, uh, be a great deal more now whether he uh, would be prepared to have essentially a settlement and admission of guilt. He strongly denies all charges against him. And it's all um, about yeah. reputation. Public relations is about managing reputations. Yaz, are you bothered by this? Are you following it avidly or are you saying, well, I don't know. It's just bizarre. As as a citizen of Bermuda, frankly, I don't care anymore. Um, it comes in and out with um with the news, and um, I'm just patiently waiting for the results. Much like the royal family, really patiently waiting for the results. Very good, Sarah. Your thoughts? Well, I think the title of this program is right. The shark is broken, and that's the same for Boris. It's the same for Andrew, um, and. I think what's happened is, it's funny, isn't it? My husband was saying that Al Capone actually got sent to prison, not for murder, but for tax evasion. Um, I think this is symbolic of what's happening with Andrew and Boris now. And you, the two go very much together in my head. People have had enough. And uh, I think ultimately the press, it's taken a bit of a time and I don't like them a lot of the time, but the fact that they put this picture of the queen on her own before her husband's funeral and then parties at number 10. Whoever's responsible, whatever, no one's interested anymore. It should not have happened, end of. Um, so I, I think there's a turning in the country. 
here. It'd be interesting to know um, what it's like in your country of what you're getting from the gist of it. But I think it's um, a big turn. And, and actually I felt quite optimistic this week because um, in a funny way, I sort of thought there is something hopefully still about Great Britain that we will turn around and say, this is not, cannot go on. This, this should not happen. And then um, Boris needs to stand up and be answering why. And ultimately, I think that's how people, people of all parties, different classes, different races are all feeling. How, how can Boris or Andrew, you know, and all this time it's taking up, why can't they just be honest? And if Boris had to stand next to somebody, as that poor man in Parliament was talking about his um, mother-in-law that died in isolation, being really serious, all his buffooning and bluffing, what does he say to that person? That's what I'd say. And I, I think it's, uh, sorry, I'm being really serious, aren't I? But um, I, from that, being positive, I actually thought the wave is turning, that we are not going to put up with it. And Andrew, my take on it is, I don't know all the ins and outs, but um, you know, he's guilty by association. And perhaps it, had he done something differently up till now with the situation, but he must be in agony with what he's doing to his mother um, and responsible for so much worry in the royal family um, that it's, it's terrible. Um, and also I think the other link is the shark is broken is the press was saying today, weren't they? Uh, well, um, finally the royal family have stripped him of all his whatever you know, titles. Um, well, finally, Boris has to be stripped of his behaviour of how he's been going on. <laughs> sorry, I've been very political, haven't I? But that's that's how I feel. It's and, not and so right. it goes, the world according to Sarah Hunty, and quite rightly so. Yes, Richard, we move now to <laughs> a spell, a spellbinding ghost story. Uh, a girl meeting her mother as a child in the woods in a moving jewel of a film which was released on the 3rd of March Ooh. 2021 originally. And it's Le Pe oh, Petite Maman. And that summary gave rather a lot away, Alex, but, well, uh, there we are. Uh, I mean, uh, there is a remarkable acting, in fact, in this movie, which was uh, Mark Como, the noted critic's favourite one of uh, last year. Um, Nelly, played by Josephine Sands, she's an eight-year-old. Now, she just loved, lost her beloved grandmother. We don't, the first shot of it, in fact, we just see the crutch that, grandmother's been using and Nellie's helping her parents to clean out her mother's childhood home. Her father um, is very, very amiable, um, but suddenly, without saying goodbye, uh, in the night after this, her mother, played by Nina Marie's, suddenly leaves. And Nellie goes out into the woods and meets a girl who's her own age, and, well, they look remarkably alike as well they might. The girl is called Marianne, played by Gabriella Sanz, and who is she, and indeed what has her past, or should I say future, um, what indeed is this? Alex did hint at it. Uh, I, I have to say it's a very curious film. I, I, I do agree it's 
done by, um, uh, directed by Celine Sciamma, who did the superb sapphic, the movie of sapphic love, a portrait of a lady on fire, which I absolutely loved. Uh, here it's playing with time, uh, because as you have been, it has been revealed to you who this, this other child. We, we have time is too short to actually mess around with not revealing sort of key areas. Oh, yeah, oh, no, no, I dare, Alex. I totally disagree with you. If you, if you, you're, you're a monster when it comes to <laughs> and you should not have revealed. It's got that, subtitles. You got to, you, if you've got to follow the French and the right, subtitles, go with it. There's absolutely nothing to do with it. The fact that Marion, uh, you have been told who she is, and indeed, um, Nelly said, realizes she's the daughter and she's come from the future. And so we say so the plot, such as it is, develops. This is a, you know, one of the curious aspects of this film is in a, in a period, and I think you all have noticed this, that films have got much longer. In fact, there have been quite a lot in the papers about this. Um, Bond, Dune, various others, Spider-Man and so forth, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home and so on. Um, and also uh, drive my car last week is three hours, but was superb. And uh, this is only an hour and 20 minutes. And it's the, both of the uh, twins, uh, Josephine Sands as Nelly and Gabriella Sands as Marion. And um, Marion will be having an operation to uh, at some future point, uh, as we see, as the film moves towards, I mean, timeline. The timeline, I, I do have to admit that films which which have strange timelines, I do find quite difficult to connect with sometimes because you, you do have to be very, very alert on the nuances to precisely what's going on, where and what is going to happen, what has happened and so on. But in the way that this film concludes, and you've already been given a clue as to elements of its story and, and you've got these two um, like one of them is just about to celebrate her ninth birthday so they're two young twins and one of them is uh, as you've heard uh, I mean the performances here are good it's very sensitively handled Celine Scarma's visuals are really beautiful um, as I say I did find some of the time traveling aspects of it um, rather disconcerting simply because of the way I respond to films of the sort but it's beautifully done and you know I'd give both the early Munich eight out of ten and I think this definitely deserves similar and I think a lot of reviews would give it ten out of ten simply because the, the Casting is very, very good. Um, visually, it's beautiful, and it's also uh, extremely sensitive. Allowing for the fact that Einstein said that time in itself is an illusion, Yaz, will you be going to see this in the past, the present, or the future? I'm going to go with the future. Um, it does sound very interesting. I am intrigued. Sometimes. Sir Sarah, it's a bit like... Imogen comes back, meets Sarah, Sarah meets Imogen, you all connect together. It's very strange. Well, it reminds me a bit of Tom's Midnight Garden, actually, where he meets his grandmother when the midnight clock strikes. I know I love all that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I'll be going to see it. It's got very, very good reviews. As I say, French film subtitles. Um, but uh, at 1 hour 20, it's, it, it, that's clever because it does, I think, show the film does not have to be one and a half hours. Or indeed, two or three. And finally, for a few moments, and in fact, a few seconds, because that's probably all it merits. Sarah, did you see the Golden Globes? No, I'm afraid I didn't. No. 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 Yes, did you see the Golden Globes? 
Natalie Wanton did actually want to say, or uh, rather Sasha Wanton wanted to say, she was pleased that uh, uh, Andrew uh, Garfield was awarded something, I believe. But uh, Natasha will talk about that probably next week. Richard, the Golden Globes, nobody's seen it. Nobody cares. Well, uh, firstly, Alex, you couldn't. Your your trick question was very cruel because I'm getting, you know, your tricks, they don't get past me. We had a spoiler in the last review. Now we got the trick. Did you see the Golden Globes? Nobody could see the Golden Globes because the Golden Globes weren't, as you know, perfectly well laughing like that you've been caught. NBC Sarah and Yaz might have had post limitations oh, oh, well about it they you couldn't see them uh, they uh, they released the details of the winners including the power of the dog I I, I have to say and West Side Story uh, and also uh, very very good performance uh, by Will Smith King Richard won um, some uh, Rachel Ziegler, Best Actress, West Side Story, Anita DeBose, so West Side Story, Best Supporting Actress. All of these were very, very uh, fine choices. The problem was that the Golden Globes are simply in the in disgrace. And whereas, uh, I mean, The Power of the Dog was the winner, as well as, uh, I guess, Tick, Tick, Boom, and Andrew Garfield. So we've got both Will Smith and Andrew Garfield, as you all, as you all know, the Globes divided into drama and also musical or comedy. So what the choices were fine, yes. The problem was, well, nobody saw it because firstly, uh, it was discovered that under the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who had the special slot of the opening of the award ceremonies since 1940s, 89 of them, there was not one person of colour. And now there are because they've added over 20. But the other problem was that it had been noticed for a long, long, long time that certain nominations have cropped up, most recently Emily in Paris, which had been linked to, dare I suggest it, freebie jaunts. And um, members of the Globes, foreign, the foreign press, had um, had a lot of fun by uh, visiting various films and all the rest. I mean, they do a certain amount for charity, but frankly, no one in Hollywood wanted anything to do with them. Tom Cruise returned his Globes. Scarlett Johansson made some acid comments. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger were peripherally involved, but the um, results were tweeted out. So uh, I'm afraid, um, I, mean, I mean, my own hope is that the Globe... Let's hope report. it sets the pattern for the Academy Awards and the BAFTAs. No, that's uh, all I can say. You do not want it to set the pattern. You are being ultra provocative. You know perfectly well that how destructive that would be to the cinema industry. I'm just saying it would be a possibility. You could actually work at that. It'd be a lot, lot quicker no, no. and you wouldn't have to worry about going to see them in any case. The power of the dog, absolutely. Will Smith as King Richard, absolutely. Best actor. And Nicole Kidman for being the Ricardos, of course, we discussed before. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it was a good performance. I mean, uh, against Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter, which we'll be discussing next week. Lady Gaga in the House of Gucci, you know what I thought of that. And Kristen Stewart in Spencer. She wasn't very good. So Well, I mean, House of Gucci still an undiscovered gem, I feel, especially for the accents and other issues in the world. Did you see it? Did you see it? It it, it works on so many levels. We haven't got time to discuss it because still to come on the programme today, we'll be talking about people's habits. You haven't seen it. You're trying to talk me out. People's, People's consumer habits and indeed the importance of actually keeping your canine friends physically fit. 
Sarah Huntley is out to leave. So we salute Sarah. Yes, it's been awesome connecting with you again. We'll hope to see you again very soon and obviously connect with the Midweek Drive. And Richard, as ever a pleasure. Uh, I hope you enjoy, or as I said, I should use the Phil Leonis uh, words now, Richie Fitzwilliams. Uh, huge thanks from that point of view. Listen to the opening line for that, uh, for the other piece. And uh, keep on watching the movies. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Bye. So how's it going then if you're actually in the retail business? Is it uh, successful? I mean, we had the enjoyment of the golden quarter and the run up to Christmas, of course. All that thing started off with the joys of uh, Black Friday, Christmas and so on and so forth. Uh, but it seems when you're actually into online scenarios, online sales are indeed booming. Uh, and indeed, we're going to find out how retailers uh, have been faring so far uh, with recent research coming through from uh, Emasis. And indeed, we're delighted to welcome a retail expert but Payal Hindotcha to actually talk to us today. How are you, Payal? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So give us the headlines from this new UK consumer survey by Emesis. What are the key things that effectively have been revealed about our online and shopping habits? Uh, from what we've seen, online sales certainly have been favorable for both consumers and retailers alike. And and uh, Q4 and the golden quarter for retailers and both for consumers was actually really successful. And almost over half of us actually bought something online. But what our research showed us is uh, quite a few of us also returned something that we bought online into a physical store. So yes, online is going up, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say that the in-store experience is less valued. In fact, 74% of us still prefer in-store shopping experiences, but rather maybe we'll start researching what we want to buy online and then visiting the store to either go pick it up if we bought it online, or we'll actually go start our research in the store and then buy it online. So from a consumer perspective, there's, there's, um, there's almost no difference between where the customer wants to buy it. It's more around what's convenient for that customer. Now, clearly, uh, one of the kind of uh, aspects about the uh, the fun pandemic that we have been through over the last, and indeed are still going through, uh, over the, uh, the the last uh, uh, couple of years or so, is that people did switch more onto online system. And it's interesting that quarter of people apparently are still going to maintain low contact shopping and uh, and work on a contactless uh, system as well. With only thirteen percent of shoppers actually planning to visit physical stores more in twenty twenty two. So the online world certainly seems as though it's had a, a COVID boost, really, it would seem. Yeah, and that happened not because people wanted to, but because they were actually forced to buy on online now. And it was a trend that we had seen coming in retail for a while now. It's just the pandemic accelerated this trend. And now consumers actually see the ease and convenience of shopping online. But from a retailer perspective, it's also interesting to see how um, many retailers that we work with they are using different digital channels such as sms such as email such as whatsapp now to actually communicate to that customer outside of the store and try and offer those in-store shopping experiences but via digital channels so we've seen that become very popular in the last year and i think that will be popular going into this year but like i mentioned it's it's not Yes, we're still very much in uh, uh, in the pandemic and COVID is still very much still part of our lives and people will still be comfortable shopping online. But that doesn't mean that the value in the in-store experience is any less. In terms of what people are actually buying, um, any particular surprises there? I see that loungewear and exercise equipment are still pretty uh, high in terms of uh, people's purchase choices. 
So in the last uh, 12 to 18 months or so, over 43% of us actually bought something predominantly online, like we just discussed. But we also bought things like sports and fitness equipment, loungewear. And when we saw a spike in December, what people were actually buying was occasion wear and smart attire to either attend Christmas parties or go to events because things were open at the end of last year. Now, Emesis works with over 1,600 brands across the uh, the world, uh, Gymshark, Sports Direct, Shark, Tilbury, and so on. Um, does this also capture the kind of more bespoke, small, enterprising trader who might previously have actually been found in, uh, in various sort of county shows and areas within that field? Or is that another issue in terms of people's purchasing habits? I think that's a different topic in terms of people purchasing people's purchasing habits where uh, people will start their journey via digital channels they'll start it online and perhaps visit the brand store to be able to complete it or vice versa so I think that's a uh, probably a different different story for another time. And in terms of sustainability, Pyle, I mean, obviously, post COP26, that is very much key to an awful lot of mission statements from companies in terms of uh, providing sustainable products and so on. Um, it's a little under a fifth of people who seem to be planning to shop more sustainably in 2022. Do you think that was a little, a little low? Would you have expected it to be slightly higher? Um, I actually think it's on point. And as... Um, at least retail brands start communicating their sustainability um, strategy to customers and how how ethical they are in terms of um, how sustainable their their business processes and what they buy and they sell are. I think it will that number will only just increase in the next year to two years as consumers as ourselves become we become more aware of. Uh, sustainable shopping habits and where you can buy and source sustainable products from. Most folk have been following the financial news so will be aware that we're heading into potentially a perfect storm of high energy prices, uh, prices and costs of living crisis and other crises as well from that point of view. Do you think that's going to impact uh, consumer demand certainly once we kind of get into the February, March area? I think it certainly will impact consumer demand, Alex. And people will be much more conscious about what they spend and going back to shopping more ethically, uh, shopping more um, sustainably will also become just as important now because we're talking about the balance between sustainability and spending power with consumers. And I think from a retailer's perspective, what would really help to navigate through this um this dip in consumer demand is to really have a look at what consumers have bought in the past, whether that was pre-COVID times, whether that was during COVID, and really understand the value of that customer, what they bought, uh, what other products would go with it to help them with their supply and demand and keep that customer coming back to their brand. But also, it's not about it's not about just sending a customer something that they think they're going to buy. It's more about what's relevant to that customer now. It's more about what's contextually relevant based on what they've bought or what they're actually looking to buy and, and building that relationship with them and allowing them to have an offer or a discount when they're ready to buy just to be able to keep that customer coming back and build that relationship with them. The age-old tale of customer loyalty and how to actually ensure that customer loyalty is, is maintained. Um, we could debate for hours on that particular one. Uh, Pearl, where can people actually go to, to find out more details about this Emesis survey? So people can go to emasis.com to be able to find out more insights and more trends on consumers.
And are you overall in an optimistic mode as we head into the year of three twos? Do you think that actually retail is going to actually continue to grow? I mean, we've already talked about some of the challenges that it uh, faces. Uh, do you feel that uh, if, when we speak again um, towards the back end of the year, that actually things will pan out okay? I am always optimistic when it comes to retail because retail is resilient. We always find a way. And I feel 2022 is going to be a challenging but a very good year for retail. Payal Hindocha, uh, retail expert. Uh, extraordinary. I'll, I'll add the words to the whole thing. Uh, on behalf of Emesis, many thanks indeed. And uh, happy online shopping, Payal. Thank you, Alex. So what is it about our love affair with our canine friends, human's best friend, you might well say, and I know there might be cat people out there will be turning around saying, but you can't be talking about this with respect to, to dogs and various other sort of factors, etc. Well, we are today, uh, and it's uh, quite literally because we want to make sure that our dogs have a nice long life, you know, allowing for the matching notion of seven years uh, per dog life or every year of single life, etc. Obviously, we want to extend that, um, but it would seem that 22% of us are actually giving our pets treats after falling for, yes, those legendary puppy dog eyes. Now, to actually talk through this, we're delighted to welcome dog trainer and behaviorist extraordinaire, the fabulous Carolyn Menteith. How are you, Carolyn? I'm fine. How are you? Excellent. So is it just a case of, oh, they cock their heads to one side, they look, oh, please, please, can you please, you know, spare a little the extra sausage or an extra piece of this, etc. You know, you, you know, Christmas should be every day. Is that something that basically uh, people just can't resist when it comes to this research from Tales.com? Well, I mean, I think so. I mean, dogs, dogs have, while they've evolved from wolves, um, or at least have the same ancestor as the wolf, they've evolved as scavengers. That's what our dogs are. And they're fantastic at getting food from all kinds of places. And for our dogs, the best place to get food is from us because we can't resist it. We love our dogs. We look on our dogs as being part of the family. We want to give the people in our lives that we love nice things and so we think well maybe just one treat won't hurt or maybe that 10% of dog tax I call it that you leave on your plate at the end for your dog just because you can't possibly resist them but our dogs are really really good at training us to do that um, which is fine but then more than 50% of dogs in the UK are classed as being overweight. And this does have an impact on their health, on their mobility, and sadly also on their lifespan. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the uh, habits that uh, uh, people actually have with uh, their favourite canine friends, 37% uh, promoting uh, uh, pooches to being heads of quality control. They uh, let them eat ingredients when you're preparing the meal. Uh, a third actually allow their pets to eat food for them onto the floor. Uh, and indeed, just under a third actually provide uh, the opportunity for uh, the dogs to actually lick the dishes clean as well. Now, all of that can obviously add to calories. And uh, presumably, as you've just said, Carolyn, that can obviously lead to unhealthy canines. Yeah, I mean, it does. And it's really easy for just those little slip ups to become quite big. If you're giving your dog a little bit when you're preparing the food and then you're giving your dog a little bit while you're eating the food and then you're letting them do the pre-wash on the plates afterwards, over the course of a day, that really, really adds up. And you might have a fantastically good balanced diet for your dog the rest of the time, but there's probably 50% more that they're just eating 
as you go throughout the day. And we do use food with our dogs. We use treats when they do the things that we want them to do. We use treats when we're training, but that has to be kept in moderation. 50% of dogs being overweight is extraordinary. And one of the things that we're not very good at doing, especially at this time of year, is coupling that with enough exercise, getting them out enough, giving them fun exercise. Look at the bre what your dog was originally bred to do and give them outlets for that behavior. So if you've got a gun dog like a retriever, get out there and play retrieve games and have fun and have interaction rather than all your reward and all your interaction being about food. Interesting in terms of ways to actually cope with uh, um, dogs uh, and their puppy dog eyes, etc. Is, is presumably actually switching the treat to something other than actually giving them food, actually taking them out uh, for a, a walk or actually sort of giving them a, a bit of a, a play as well from that point of view, but actually getting them exercising will be good. Absolutely. Um, interaction, working with your dog in that way improves the relationship you have with your dog. Food is a great way to train dogs. Treats are a great way to train dogs because food is a, it's a primary reinforcer. You don't have to teach dogs that food is good. They know that food is good. So it's a brilliant, brilliant reward. But I see people training their dogs and every time their dog does something that they want, they give them this huge, enormous treat that's probably full of preservatives and additives and sugar. Use healthy treats. And if it's bigger than the size of your little fingernail, then it's too big. So not just reduce the number of treats you're giving your dog, but actually make them smaller, make sure they're healthy. And yes, use exercise, use games, use play, and just exercise your dog more. It's not just what you put in the front, it's the exercise and the activity for dogs, especially in this weather. Also, presumably important to acknowledge that uh, as the uh, the alpha uh, person in the relationship, uh, female or male, that you're the person who's actually in charge. And sometimes you have to ignore those puppy dog eyes. Yeah, I mean, we are completely responsible for what our dogs eat. Our dogs don't get to eat unless we give it to them. We control the resources. So if our dogs are overweight, it is our fault. We can't blame our dogs for doing what is in their nature. They're scavengers, they're great at puppy dog eyes, and they train us. It's much more important that we're the ones who are in control of the diet and that we just look at our dog's waistlines. It's really easy, it's a little bit like us. You can put on just a little bit of weight every now and then and you don't notice it sneaking on until you're significantly overweight. And it's the same with our dogs. Keep an eye on them, look at their waistlines. If you think they're getting a little bit porky, then cut down the treats, up the exercise a little bit, and make sure the diet that you're giving your dog is the very, very best that it can be. That's why at Tails.com, every single dog's diet is specifically and individually tailored to make sure not just that they're getting the healthiest food possible, but they're getting the right quantities. And if you're giving your dog the right quantity the rest of the time, then maybe you can slip a few extra treats every now and then, and it doesn't matter so much. Beagles, Border Terriers, Miniature Schnauzers and Miniature Dachshunds uh, top of the list. Were you surprised by those? Because, I mean, does it also depend on the breed of dog and how, uh, how cute they might look to their owners that basically also impacts the amount of treats that they're getting? Whereas you, you take your, uh, uh, I don't know, your average Alsatian, they might sort of think, no, you don't need any, any sort of additional treat. 
I think there's a lot to do with the puppy dog eyes. It's also to do with the breed. Um, the one thing I was surprised about is that Labradors weren't in there because Labradors are the, I, I always said that a Labrador is a support system for a stomach um, because they are absolutely fantastic at hoovering up absolutely everything. So I was surprised by that. Beagles I wasn't surprised about. Is there anything cuter than a beagle looking at you with those eyes going, go on, I'm starving. Um, and so, and so I, I, I was surprised that some breeds weren't in there, but then I wasn't surprised by the others. They are the experts at the puppy dog eyes and they're the experts at training us. And um, one of the things that's really interesting is there was some research done a little while ago that said, owners get as much pleasure from giving the dog treats as the dog gets from receiving them. And I get that. Our dogs are part of our family and we love to give the people that we love nice things and good things. But we have to bear in mind that this impacts on our dog's lifespan, their activity, their health. And so we have to make sure that if we really can't resist those puppy dog eyes, we're giving the healthiest treats that we possibly can do and that we're giving them the very best diet that they can have and that we're getting them out and exercising them. And presumably tails.com will actually have further details of how our owners can actually achieve those wonderful targets of not only happy dogs, uh, but also healthy dogs as well. We do indeed. Go to the tails.com forward slash blog and you can find lots of information about the research that we've been doing on this and also just how to watch your dog's waistline, how to exercise them more appropriately and how to resist those puppy dog eyes. Carolyn Monteith, dog trainer and behaviourist extraordinaire. Huge thanks. Just out of interest, you may not have a sort of uh, response to this, Carolyn, but uh, does the same thing apply to cats? Or is that just a case of, no, that's a completely different issue? Well, the thing with cats is it's a, it's a little bit harder with cats. Um, we don't train cats in the same way. We don't take them out and exercise them in the same way. So we don't necessarily have that reward and treat thing with cats but cats are very very good at looking at their food that they loved yesterday and going I'm sorry what's this exactly. um, and so it's very very easy to get into the habit of always giving more things that are possibly more tempting or a little bit a little bit tastier and heading into the slightly unhealthy Cats are better at self, most cats are better at self-exercising. So cats that go outside will jump and climb um, and so get a little bit more exercise. So yes, it's a, it applies to cats as well, but just slightly differently. There's slightly different um, drives when it comes to cats and eating. Cats were never designed to be scavengers in the way dogs are, but cats are top of the tree hunters and predators so their feeding patterns are slightly different there you are carolyn monteith dog trainer and behaviorist as we said extraordinary huge thanks and uh, i'm sure you will stay healthy carolyn and may all your dogs remain healthy as well <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> Babe. 
babe, you need all the friends you can get, I'm telling you. I'm gonna buy me a dog. My girl, my girl, no lime, no how. Don't ruin my time. <laughs> it's the only song <laughs> I had. Uh, where's the verse? She used to bring me my, my newspaper. You don't even know where it's at. she knew where it was at. She used to keep me so contented. But I can't teach a dog to do that. I'm gonna buy me a dog. You can teach a dog to do that. You can only train elephants. Cause I need a friend now. I need a friend now. Now. Yeah. I'm gonna buy me a dog. A dog to hear over Fido's spot. My I was late on that one. <laughs> I just got back from Africa, you know. I was playing cards with the natives. Oh, Zulus? No, I usually won. Uh, uh. I wish I had a glass of water. Why, are you thirsty? No, I want to see if my neck links. <laughs> I'd buy a raccoon, but John already has <laughs> 35 like bucks. Okay. I'm gonna buy me a dog. Dog. A dog. Bob, Bob, Ramble, Lamb. I'm gonna buy me a dog. <laughs> What my girl? My girl don't let me know how. How? Now, now, brown cow. <laughs> I think I'm gonna buy me a dog. Yes, sir. I'm gonna buy me a dog. If I was looking for a word to describe what I'm it gonna buy, I think dog would be the word. Dog? It would be dog. Definitely that dog. would come springing from my lips. Dog. Can you turn it up, please? Can somebody open the door and let us out?